Hello and welcome to The Mission. My name is Ravi Gurumurthy and I'm the Chief Executive of Nesta, the UK's innovation agency for social good. And today we've got a live edition of The Mission with Chris Blackman. Chris is a professor at the Harris School of Public Policy in Chicago and he's here because he's written an amazing book called Why We Fight. And I can testify to this being an amazing book because I had COVID a few weeks ago and I couldn't really stay up past 9.30. I was literally flat out in bed at 9.30. And thanks to the power of Chris's book, it got me back up to my normal midnight um, sleeping time in the last few days. Uh, And what's brilliant about it is it sets out multiple different causes of war, but it's not just a laundry list of issues What's brilliant about it is it's a framework that really intersects and you see how the different causes build on each other. Um, and it's full of amazing stories that bring those to life. So um, I do really, really recommend you, you read it. Chris, welcome. Thank you. First question really is about why you actually wrote the book and what was troubling you about the existing literature? You must have thought that this is not up to much. So I, I kept waiting for somebody else to write the book because it's this is a little bit of what I do, but it's mostly this like all these ideas that I've inherited from my economics background, my political science life, my psychology life through, you know, my spouse and uh, co-authors and all these social sciences. And there were these, uh, and then I would meet village leaders or I meet gang leaders or I meet world leaders and they don't know any of these things. And, and that seems like a problem. So I, I, I just wanted to put it together. So there's just like decades and decades of work and it feels like a secret and 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 so yeah so now just trying to let in everybody else in on the secret uh, and what about the sort of field of the literature did you think was was not quite working for you well i mean it, it's almost the opposite it was working so well for me and i just couldn't believe that some of the some of the ideas weren't out there i think the synthesis wasn't there mm-hmm. so you know when i you know when i talked to my more economic or game theoretic colleagues they really overlook and misunderstand the psychological and behavioral roots of war. And when I, and then I think when I talk to everybody else or when I see the sort of armchair uh, quarterbacking, can I say that in England? Uh, (laughs) Armchair quarterbacking that happens on war in the newspapers. um, It's, it it ignores, people are really ignorant of the strategy uh, and the game theory. And, and so the fact that these sides aren't talking or thinking about one another, so bringing it together, I think, was missing. Yeah. I'm trying to think, the, think of the British translation for quarterbacking, but I'm a bit stuck. <laughs> but um, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that problem. Just first of all, let's just define terms. So you're talking about prolonged battle, prolonged conflict mm-hmm. amongst groups yeah. rather than individuals or brief skirmishes. Why did you draw that distinction? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I like to say that enemies prefer to loathe in peace. Uh, that that that's the natural state and mm-hmm. and it's more a lens it's not the only way to look at conflict but it's more a lens to to um that that's just going to give you a better perspective and it's a little bit like i mean imagine that you're a doctor and you've only ever been on the intensive crit- like critical ward and you aren't even aware that most humans are healthy uh so i mean first you'd be kind of demoralized right you'd think sort of like you think oh the world's super violent what can we do about it uh, and that would be the wrong conclusion as a doctor. But also, you'd probably be pretty rotten at diagnosis and and probably prescribe the wrong treatments. And and so that's kind of how I felt. Like, if you don't, 
if, if you think that everybody's fighting all the time, and they're not. I mean, a little example, it seems like a weird message at this moment when there's this horrible war going on so close. Uh, but, for example, two weeks into the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, India accidentally lobbed a cruise missile at Pakistan. And calm ensued. You know, as, it, as it kind of has for decades, you know, the, the tensions, enemies loathed and have loathed in peace mostly. Um, and so we, we learn about the wars and we, we forget the quiet moments of compromise, uh, like the doctors who forget that there's healthy patients out there. And so I just, that's like a, a starting point was to say, let's not make that mistake. But it is one of degree, isn't it? Because you could argue that there's been lots of um, terrorist networks yeah. supported by Pakistan and India. Um, it doesn't actually make, make, go into a full, state, full scale interstate war, yeah. but it remains at a low level. Um, right. And so gangs skirmish and gang bang a little, you know, shoot things up a little bit. To And, 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 and countries have border squabbles and skirmishes and... And, and there's occasional flare-ups, and these are important. They're, sometimes they're idiosyncratic, sometimes they're signaling, sometimes they're accident. Like there, there's lots of reasons, but they don't last very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's the, it's the prolonged fighting that goes on weeks and months and years that is like the thing that's rare. That low-scale violence is, is distinct and happens, but that's, you know, obviously it's, that's not really what we're deeply worried about. Mm-hmm. And in your book, you've, you've got these series of pie charts yeah. that tries to explain why it is our natural state is actually peace and that the natural way of resolving a conflict is to bargain and there's a sort of bargaining range. So I'm hoping you've got a kind of podcast-friendly way of um, yeah, yeah, yeah. explaining your, your pie charts. Yeah, I didn't think about that when I was like, recording the audio book. I was like, oh, how is that going to work? <laughs> um, no, I think it's, it's pretty simple. It's to say uh, you have a choice, right? So... so Chairman Mao said, war is politics with bloodshed. And von Clausewitz, this this famous German general, said that uh, war is politics by other means. And what they were saying is that you can, every time you have a a dispute with an adversary, you can find some sort of resolution. Uh, Probably you'll split your pie in relative proportion to your power, basically your ability to burn each other's house down. Uh, or you can fight over that, destroy a share of what you were fighting over, and then split it or flip a coin for it. And so it's ba- it's like simple arithmetic. It's basically saying, well, it's almost always better to 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 split the undamaged pie before rather than split something that you've spoiled. And um, and 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 so what I like to say, if if people, you know, it's hard to remember. There's a lot in the book. If, if, if there's one thing to remember, it's that war is rare because it's ruinous. And every answer to why we fight is a reason that our society or our leaders ignore or overlook those costs. And that gets us in a way to the first of the five causes you lay, which lay out, which is the unchecked interests of leaders. Yeah. Um, and is that basically, if you take a sort of Vladimir Putin right now, that's about that individual may go to war, but the bulk of the costs may fall on the Russian people, and he may not personally pay much of a price. Uh, is that one example of, of what exactly? You're about? Yeah, and that's in some sense the most common example in human history. It's the 
Liberian warlord who is only thinking of himself for the diamond profits he can enrich himself with. It's the American president who maybe is too ready to bomb another country to distract from his sex scandal. Uh, it's it's a, a personalized dictator who is either just ignoring the costs and hence too ready to use violence or saying in order to hold on to power, I'll do something that isn't in the interest of my country or my group, but I'll do something that's in the interest of me. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's endemic. But it's still, I mean, in some ways, when you say that, you could think of loads of examples, which makes me then think, well, why isn't war more common? But you're, mm-hmm. I think you're still saying that war does have probab- has costs that probably have some bearing on that leader, as we're seeing with Putin yeah. right now. So just gives a sense of, in a way, why is it not more common that war happens? Because yeah. it, it, it may be very often that leaders have unchecked interests. Well, it, I, I mean, sadly, it is kind of, you know, I, I didn't write a book called Why We Don't Fight. <laughs> uh, uh, so it does, ha- and and I think the more we, the more unchecked leaders we've had in history, I think the more wars there have been. And so, you know, uh, many people point to like the early modern era in, in in you know the UK and Europe, and incessant centuries of warfare, p- partly because of just a series of unchecked rulers, and and so so it, it can it can happen, um, but the thing is is that. You're right. Putin does face costs, and it's still risky for him, uh, because even if he doesn't care as much about who's dying on the battlefield, although he does, because there's only so many people he can put on the front lines, uh, and he has to worry about his own political position. Uh, you know, there's always somebody whispering in your ear saying, "You know, there's not much money left in the treasury," and and so that. That's, it's a very expensive prospect to go to war. So, so, so they bear some costs. So it's just, so, so they still have incentives for peace. Mm-hmm. So you then have this sort of second cause, which is about intangible incentives, people's yeah. motivations for honor or pride or ideology. Right. How does that, how does that intersect with the first yeah. cause? So, I mean, to use the current wars, and exa- I think there's, there's intangible or ideological incentives on both sides. I mean, the one we all read about in the newspapers, I mean, there's 12 different versions, but you've all heard them. Any story of Putin pursuing personal glory or a place in history, or he wants to be the next Peter or Catherine the Great, is a story of something ethereal that he will gain through war and conquest that, that although he bears costs, he's willing to pay them for this ethereal goal. Uh, or, or maybe something that's larger than himself, that's the glory of the Russian Empire, or you hear about how oh, Russia is humiliated by the last 30 years. All of these are stories of... And, and the fact that he's unchecked means that maybe he's too ready to pay those costs. The ones that are harder to see, not all of these intangible ideological incentives are so um, you know, ignoble. They're, there's also noble ones, so, so liberty. Um, why did the, the Ukrainian, a tyrannical superpower offered the Ukrainians semi-sovereignty? And they were weak, and, and most of Russia's neighbors have accepted that, right? War is rare. There's, Russia has not had to invade most of its neighbors to achieve the exact same aims because they've accepted that deal. The Ukrainians said, no way. 
because of this ideological attachment to liberty. And in the book, I use, again, apologies to my British colleagues, the, there's a close parallel to, um, I think, the American Revolution. Uh, a tyrannical superpower at the time, led by an autocrat, uh, offered, offered this colony or these colonies semi-sovereignty. And it w- they were militarily inferior, and they had really, like all the other colonies, including my own, which was Canada, took that deal. But the, 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 for ideological reasons, the Americans said no way. And there's very famous history uh, of, of this by Bernard Balin called The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. And it's about how Jefferson, sorry, Adams and Hamilton and, and other founding fathers were... Uh, engaged in a process of constructing that ideological, or it just doesn't happen. Political entrepreneurs had to make it happen. And, and that's a source of war today and in history, an ideological refusal to accept an, a reasonable, in air quotes, kind of compromise. So, so that seems quite a common pattern where you might have um, groups of people who may have some affinity with a tribe or other identity. Yeah. But that boundary goes up and down in salience over time. Yeah. And sometimes you have a leader that really activates that boundary, that identity, in order to justify war. Um, is that a very, very common strategy? No, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's, yeah, if you want to mobilize people, sorry, if you want to have bargaining power vis-a-vis your adversary, then you need to mobilize weapons and people. And you can mobilize weapons with people with cash, it's really ch- it's much cheaper if you can mobilize them to do this for free, mm-hmm. uh, right? And this is what, you know, our, our employers try to do this. They try to create intrinsic motivations, right? And, so, and political entrepreneurs are trying to, and so are trying to do the same thing. And so whether it's a, 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 a you know, a, 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 a Hindu nationalist leader in an Indian city with recursive riots or... Um, or an American president, or whomever, like there's an I, you, 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 keeping that rage machine stoked mm-hmm. is very effective. Or if you're John Adams and Alexander Hamilton and, and, and James Madison, keeping that sort of rights-based liberty ideology stoked all the time is also in your interest because it gets you a lot of free fighters. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned... Um, the role of radio, actually, in the Rwandan genocide mm-hmm. as a way of stoking that rage machine. Do you worry that social media enables that to happen more and amplify that? Or perhaps, uh, contra- contrary to that, it almost fragments conversation? I mean, technology has always cut both ways, right? Hitler was like the famous user of radio. And, and then the genocidaires were the famous users of also radio and, and social media... But 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 there there are many radio programs that have been peacemaking as well, and mm-hmm. I've you know I've witnessed some of those in the aftermath of the Liberian Civil War, and so it's it's these tools. It depends who's wielding them. Mm-hmm. I think is the is the question. They, it can cut both ways. I think on average, m- many of our leaders have used them to bring us together, but 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 that yeah that it, it can go both ways. So we've got unchecked interests of, of leaders, mm-hmm. you've got intangible incentives, and then the third, um, I'm tempted to say horseman of the apocalypse, but I think you've got five, so it doesn't quite work, but anyway, um, your third reason is uncertainty. Yeah. How does that overlay? 
So, so let, let's continue with the Ukraine example because it's tangible to a lot of people right now. Um, it's it's easy to forget how uncertain certain things were. I think just three months ago. So, mm-hmm. how resolved would the West be on sanctions? Would Germany cooperate? Would Switzerland? Nobody even thought Switzerland would cooperate on this. What? What's the military capacity of the Russian army? How plucky and brave and able will the Ukrainian resistance be, including would Zelensky get on the plane, right? And 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 the idea, everything that's happened was within the realm of possibilities, but I don't think that anyone predicted that the Russia would get a bad draw on all three of these things, mm-hmm. least of all, presumably, Vladimir Putin. So, So simply the fact that things are uncertain means that War becomes a gamble, but where where it gets even harder, and where like the strategy comes in, which is sort of code for game theory, but 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 it's it's simple because everybody in this room understands it if they've ever played poker. If you don't know what cards your opponent is ha- is 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 holding, and they're telling you no 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 no, like seriously, we're totally resolved about these sanctions. We're gonna put up resistance. I'm not going to get on the plane. You're like, well, mm, you you have an incentive to say you have an incentive to bluff, and and so I don't really know. And and so the optimal strategy in poker is just not to fold every time somebody pretends they have a strong hand or might even have a strong hand. So 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 war war becomes a gamble that where it's actually strategically optimal to attack in these instances of uncertainty. Um, and and that's easy to that's easy to forget. Mm. I mean, another very obvious example is Iraq. Yeah. Where um, and, and one feature of the Iraq War was that obviously Saddam Hussein was not just worried about America. He's worried about being toppled by another person within the regime. He's worried about Israel. He's worried about Iran. Yeah. And so therefore, he's pretending that he he's got more WMD or has WMDs and mm-hmm. an atomic weapons program even though that risks an American invasion. So just talk us through your take on on how uncertainty mm-hmm. played into that, but also why, in a way, did, um, did Saddam Hussein continue to bluff, continue to bluff, even though it became increasingly obvious he was going to pay the biggest price? Yeah, I mean, eventually he did come clean, mostly, but it was like days or weeks before, so there was a years of this bluffing. Um, partly because you're not just you're you're you know you're every time you bluff in poker, you're not just bluffing against that one person with that one hand. You know you're going to play with them again and again, but you know you're playing around a table with people who are also trying to figure out what kind of player you are, and and so you're bluffing also for an audience. Uh, and so, so to some extent, so that's that's also that that can that's that's. That's an that, that's an that's an incentive to sometimes just to keep up the the concealment, um, and and there's a lot of historical documentation now that suggests that that was what was going on in Iraq. The other thing, the other sort of dynamic that uncertainty creates is I I like to you know I I most you know my day job isn't working on international warfare so much, it's working with rebel groups and gangs uh, and one gang leader I met through a program that I've been running uh, talked about how 
he got started. He, he, so he's in the program because he's a pretty hardened killer. That's what the program's for. The most gang members don't shoot. They're, nobody likes to shoot. It's, but there's the small number of shooters, and and those are the guys we're trying to find and work with. And uh, he sometimes gangs gang these guys shoot because they're unchecked, like they don't bear the costs for a lot of their actions, and they they do have intangible incentives very often. It's basically revenge, right? There there's a lot of blood feuds, but and and, and a lot of people stop there. But he had a different story. He said, well. When I started out, somebody robbed me, and they, they took my drugs and the drugs of my gang, and I realized that if I didn't do something, I'd have to not only get out of the business, but I'd probably get killed. So we tracked them down, and we shot them. And I had to do that a few more times, uh, and then they stopped robbing me. And so he's, you know, he had to construct a reputation. And so you have to say, why do you need a reputation? Well, you only need a reputation in a world of uncertainty. Uh, because if his strength or resolve is written on his forehead, uh, then, and, and then, then there's no need, right? Um, no, that he wouldn't have been robbed in the first place. Right? There's a lot of uncertainty. Saddam Hussein up to the very last minute didn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily convinced. There are a lot of internal documents, interviews with the generals, etc. He didn't actually think they were going to, invade and put boots on the ground. Um, he knew it could happen, but he, he gambled no, because, because it, there, this was fundamentally uncertain. And he'd been engaged in a lot of reputation construction through the threatening of WNDs. So that doesn't explain, I think, the whole invasion, but I think it explains a lot of the dynamics and the tensions and why it was hard to resolve. And it's different, you know, it's, doesn't, it's not to the exclusion of the blood for oil or... George Bush wanting to avenge his daddy, or whatever these stories you hear. It's not to say that those aren't also, it's just to say that this adds to the, the mm -hmm. sort of the mess that, that led up to this invasion. Uh, and one thing that interests me is, is if states or gangs are trying to project their strength, mm -hmm. um, how does the media's coverage of war change their strategy and tactics? Because in some ways, if you go and bomb a hospital mm -hmm. um, or you know, do particularly barbaric acts, it probably has a beneficial effect in terms of signaling strength. Yeah. Um, and I think about, you know, Sri Lanka or Syria or, or right now in Ukraine, mm -hmm. you've, you've seen that. And it just makes you think, well, is media coverage of war um, actually a, a potentially damaging thing and counterproductive? So, I mean, in general, things that reduce uncertainty, media, spy agencies, right? Like, why do we invest in intelligence? Because we want to reduce uncertainty, right? But all these things, I think, are generally pacifying in the sense of, um, of uh, reducing uncertainty. Mm -hmm. But where it can backfire is where our media is maybe biased or outraged, or maybe where our leaders want the media or encourage media to be biased and outraged, which is easier in an autocracy. Because Here's the thing, if you, as, suppose that you're an unchecked leader and you don't have any ideological incentive to fight, you just have some private interest for like, I don't know, for exterminating this democracy on your doorstep because it's a threat to your regime. But you want your populace to have an ideological incentive to fight, partly because it, they'll, they'll fight for you, right? So it helps you mobilize an arm and gives you bargaining power, but also, if, if they're really outraged at the enemy, 
and are willing to fight in spite of some of the costs, then there's a whole set of bargains that you've basically eliminated. You can go to your opponent and say, I realize there's room for us to cut a deal, but and, and in theory, war is so costly, I should be able to cut like a deal that's quite favorable to you, unfavorable to me. But look at who, look at my people. They're so upset. If I do that, I'll be out of power. We, that deal's not credible. And so that means you actually have an incentive to construct an ideology. You, you have an incentive to convince your populace that certain things are outrageous. And this is what all leaders in democracies and rebel groups, this is what you do to... Mm -hmm as a bargaining strategy, and you know that if you miscalibrate and if the, other, if the other leader's doing it, you could get to the point where nobody's willing to accept a compromise, where the ideological incentives are so strong on either side that the deals have almost vanished. At various points, people will make threats and say, this is what we will do if you invade. Yeah. Um, Iraq is another example where uh, I think the US were pretty straight about what they would do. But people don't necessarily believe that because they think it's just another bluff. Yeah. What are the ways in which you can make those um, those threats credible? Yeah. Um, and also, what's I mean, actually, in this war with Ukraine, the intelligence services have released more information publicly, for yeah. instance, about when Russia will attack. Are those ways of trying to reduce the level of uncertainty? Yeah. In the second case, you never know. I'm always a little suspicious when they declassify information because presumably they want that information out and not other information out. And so I'm not sure what the motive is. Were they trying to like defuse things? Were they trying to piss off Putin? Did they have what like it, it, we were being manipulated? Somebody was being manipulated with all mm -hmm. these information releases. I'm not sure who. What is the way in which you can? Ideally, could there be an independent intelligence agency yeah, that would yeah, release yeah. all information in a neutral way and therefore it reduces people's ability to uh, sort of be uns uncertain right. about what the opposition are going to do? Well, I mean, that's kind of the, you know, the second half of the book is about pathways to peace and how any, every pathway to peace rolls back one of these five causes. And, and what this is the job of mediators. Mediators work in part because their job is to reduce uncertainty. Uh, they shuttle back and forth. You find somebody who has a reputation for integrity and, and independence, and and they and then they also and they have mechanisms for verifying some of the information that they're and then they shuttle back and forth, and th and that's actually what peacekeeping forces do. A lot of people think peacekeeping forces are there to enforce deals. That's partly true, to um, whack people, whack unchecked interests and splinter groups that get out of line because of their unchecked interests, that's also true. But the day-to-day -day job of a lot of peacekeepers is basically monitoring and coordinating like weapons demobilization and troop strength. And so they're, a lot of what they do, and, and when there's misunderstandings, they set up radio stations and they stick people on the radio and they, they're, they're basically, a lot of what peacekeeping missions do is actually reducing uncertainty. Let's talk about misperception, which is another of your um, reasons. Just talk us through how that works. Since we just dwelled on uncertainty, and we've been talking about Putin and Ukraine, the story you hear, the, I think you hear two stories in the newspaper about Putin, both of which I think are true. One are these ideological, intangible objectives. Uh, and the second is that he's insulated and isolated, as many autocrats are, so institutionally, so they're getting bad information because they're surrounded by maybe the not the best and the brightest or yes men and women or 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 people are afraid to be the bearers of bad news but but 
like many leaders and maybe especially personalized autocrats can be overconfident. So it's a story of misperceptions, like underestimating the costs, right? Remember, all these reasons are reasons that you overlook the costs. And, and so being overconfident is basically just getting the cost-benefit calculus wrong, right? Um, that's probably true. Uh, but but it's, it, it sort of steals all the credit from uncertainty, Mm -hmm. Right. So a lot of people sort of look at, oh, well, he was wrong. He got a bad draw on these three things. And probably probably it's partly because he was biased and misperceived. But probably he probably he also uh, it was just genuine uncertainty. So we we tend to sort of leap to that armchair psychology mm -hmm. argument and forget those these sort of complicated strategic dynamics that just come from sheer uncertainty. And so in this particular conflict, they're a nice pair to consider together because the you can only have misperceptions because of the uncertainty uh, and what you know you mentioned overconfidence as one of the cognitive biases what are the other biases that play into into mm -hmm. these sort of misperceptions yeah i mean there's so there's so many uh i mean in this audience would be familiar with all sorts of our behavioral biases but the thing is is some of you know the thing that makes us buy a gym membership and not use it like is is actually a whole set of different biases than I think. They, those are biases about we sort of are maximizing incorrectly or we're, we're maybe mistaking our future preferences. And But what, what war involves or any kind of competition is it's a strategic interaction, right? So the biases that become much more important are the ones that cause you to make strategic errors. To basically get to do a couple things. One is just to get probabilities wrong, mm -hmm. right? And so that's where overconfidence can come in, right? What, basically, do we, how do we get probabilities wrong? Um, but then also, how do we misunderstand the other? And particularly, how do we maybe demonize, what, what's our tendency, especially when we hate that person? Uh, not in like an immediate passionate loathing sense, but just in sort of a, a long-term poisonous relationship. How do we how do we misperceive maybe see their olive branch as a as like a stick they're coming to beat us with, and and so in the book I try to draw attention and we haven't done as much research on this I think as a policy community or as an academic community we don't really think about behavioral game theory in, in mm -hmm. the same way we're we're doing a lot of gym membership stuff I think mm -hmm. and so um, but but. Uh, one of the examples I talk about in the book is um, is Northern Ireland, uh, and how I think each side it's it's a good example, like many ethnic and religious conflicts, about how both sides can develop really persistent negative frames through which they view each other's actions, uh, and they they fail to put each in, they, they they fail to sort of see the unjust the perceived injustice and of their own actions and how the other side will perceive them right so my firebomb or my shooting or beating of somebody seems like a just and appropriate response to whatever they did to to my side but because they don't they kind of have forgotten what they did to me or especially what happened while you know what however long ago uh they actually don't see it uh, they get just get angry right so we have different reference points for what's the appropriate retaliatory action 
and so that that can really lead to some escalatory dynamics, mm-hmm. and 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 that's true, and th- that's just one example of I think many right. many conflicts. So just on to the final cause, which is commitment problems. Um, so I think one example of this, which is quite common, is in a civil war, you might want to come to a bargain, mm-hmm. but um, you, you just can't trust that the other side are not going to renege. Yeah. Particularly if it's with the government, the government is going to be strengthened, and therefore, after the the deal, they'll be able to just basically impose their will. Um, and that happens, obviously, also between between countries. Um, it gets you into the role of the state or the role of um, the UN or NATO, for instance. Is the commitment problem a particular reason why wars stay carry on going on for so long? So it may I mean, not be about why it, they start, but why they don't end. Well, it's 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 about both. I mean, commitment problems are maybe one of the most powerful concepts I think in political economy. That's the least understood mm-hmm. um, in so many aspects of 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 uh, life, not just war. Uh, they're fundamental political problems about. Uh, how we share power in a stable way, and so, so the I mean the the once you start a war, it, a civil war in particular it is a famous case. Think of the FARC in Colombia, who fight this fifty-year civil war. Why would you fight a fifty-year civil war if it's so costly? Well, rebels have to put down their guns at some point and join a political process, which actually the FARC were willing to do many times, and each time they did that. Uh, the Colombian military or some faction would try to assassinate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's a commitment problem. Um, and indeed, when there was finally a peace agreement signed, uh, I'm not sure how, I mean, it's, it's in the news a little bit outside of the country, but several hundred, if not several thousand leftist leaders have been assassinated in the last few years. So, you know, some of the fears came to pass. But the commitment problem is like a deeper and more persistent issue, I think, even in the outbreak of many wars. And it comes from the fact that, especially, you know, it interacts with that first one, the unchecked leaders. Dictators have a hard time making credible commitments because they don't have any constraints, right? So, um, and that's, dictators have this, that's a real problem for every dictator. If you're the English monarch and you want to collect taxes and promise services, and they're like, hmm, no, and and that's a mar- and and why? So you know, one story. This is the power of command. Why why did England come to dominate the earth? Was because the they developed a set of political institutions that made it easier for the king to make commitments that raised taxes that made them more militarily powerful. The French failed at this. Others failed at this, um, and uh, and England ruled the land and the seas. And that's so. That's a story of commitment problems solved. Commitment problems get solved through political innovations, institutions, constitutions, parliaments, power-sharing agreements. And those power-sharing agreements are hard to construct. And so if you are, and you're constantly trying to solve them, but, but, but they, they, most long wars, whether it's world, the two world wars, whether it's the U.S. invasion of Iraq, many, you know, historians and political scientists regard these as fundamentally driven, contributed by these other four factors, but fundamentally there were commitment problems. There were, the, the, the two adversaries couldn't find a deal that they could trust each other to, to hold on to. Another kind of example of um, where a commitment problem is probably re- very relevant is when you've got a rising power. Mm-hmm. 
and how you deal with that rising power when you know you may well be in a losing situation if you let things go on. Yeah. Um, just say more about how that's historically been resolved. Yeah, so the, I mean, yeah, the Iraqis have this like famous saying, if you think your enemy is going to eat you for dinner, then you better eat them for lunch. And so that captures the logic of the commitment. It's a classic, ver it's one version of the commitment problem, which is the preventative war. Um, and so, and that's, that's, that's one of the stories for the U.S. invasion, or the, the Allied invasion of Iraq, which is that, um, yeah, there were unchecked leaders. There were ideological incentives, maybe visions of democracy in the Middle East, etc. There were misperceptions and bad intelligence. There was the uncertainty we just discussed, but fundamentally, like what everybody knew is that Saddam Hussein, even if he didn't have a nuclear weapon now, could develop a nuclear weapon, had powerful incentives to develop one in future, and because of uncertainty, could do so in secret. Maybe not now, but six months, a year, and that would totally change the balance of power. And what could Saddam Hussein, a personalized dictator, do to credibly commit? Um, and lots of things are tried: weapons inspectors opening things up. There, there is there are. And maybe there was a solution to that commitment problem, and this could have been avoided, right? That, that might, I'm sure there was. We didn't find it. Maybe we didn't find it because of the other things. I don't know. Which is just to say that, not that that's to excuse it, it's just to say that was the strategic dilemma that contributed to mm -hmm. the problem and made the range of opportunities small. But, but, but that's, that's the story of World War I, the rise of Russia, uh, and, and Germany's sense that there's a closing window of opportunity in which to lock in its advantage. And so it's, it's, all of this is like eat, eat them for lunch before they eat for dinner kind of logics. So when you look across the different five causes, um, which of them do you think are, are sort of more, more tractable in terms of interventions? Yeah. So unchecked interests, massive problem, but presumably that changes slowly over time, yeah. quite hard to intervene externally. Whereas uncertainty, one would think you can do more things to actually make both sides understand the information more clearly. But Yeah, well, so the most important is the most difficult, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of the opposite of your question, but let me just mention it. because, But a point maybe that I have come to realize almost after writing the book, because it was... Is, is that over-centralized power, I think, is maybe the most fundamental driver of war in human history because it accentuates all five. Obviously, it creates unchecked leaders, but then we're vulnerable to their intangible incentives. Uh, we're vulnerable to their idiosyncratic misperceptions or the institutional mis misperceptions that come from insulated leaders. It's uncertain to what's the mind of this. Is, is this a crazy person? Is this like a strategic actor? We don't know. And then dictators can't make commitments. So like that's the fundamentally hardest thing to do. So the highest return J thing... Just on that one yeah. though, does it not um, also create a sort of monopoly of force from the state and therefore make it harder for violence to be initiated? And if that centralised power actually has some accountability... Right. ...democratically... Right. Is it much of a problem? So, yeah, Hobbes writes the Leviathan shortly after the English Civil War, experiences his brutality, make us a king, because that will, the Leviathan will be a pacifying force. And that's, to some extent, true. Leviathans, Leviathans have been good at creating peace in their society, stopping warring groups. The problem is that the Leviathans are really good at starting wars with other Leviathans because they're unchecked. 
Also, they repress a lot of people. So the checked Leviathan, checks and balances are great because they maybe lead to less repression within the Leviathan, and then they don't fight the other Leviathans quite as often. So, so, um, so that's, that's okay. the way I think about it. But it means that I, I mean, so the, the way in which checking power is easy, it's not, uh, is is to sort of I think is like they're like I think there's lots of little things on the margin that can can be done. Uh, so if you were a, you know, let's think of something very. Let's think about school building and literacy programs. I think that's an example of actually trying to create more mobilizational power and broader swath of society that is a great investment for lots of humanitarian and other development goals, but is actually going to probably shift the balance of power a little bit in that society, right? Uh, cash transfer programs and helping people start small businesses or anything that preferential trade access and anything that contributes to industrialization is going to create indus you know, industrialists and interest groups, right? So there are a lot of, so in some sense, the sense in which it's "quote unquote" easy is uh, rich countries and domestic groups in their own societies are constantly doing stuff to manipulate their own societies for other objectives like growth, and they have a menu of options. And I would say focus on the menu of options that empower that don't make the center stronger, which is what a lot a lot of what we do. As, as rich countries, for example, actually makes the center stronger. It doesn't make the, doesn't decentralize power. We tend, we actually inadvertently make this problem worse a lot of the time. Uh, and why do we tend to do that? I mean, that happened in Afghanistan is a good example. Yeah. Um, is that because we still have that um, faith in the idea of the states having a monopoly of force and that being the, pe that being the path to stability or are there other reasons? Well, I think we're not thinking through the long-term political implications of centralizing power. So, so maybe it's, there's a certain naivete, mm -hmm. but it's really convenient to, you know, if you're like an outside donor, for example, or a partner, like if you have to deal, listen, like when I'm trying to do something in Chicago, I mean, there are just so, it's such a pain. Like, I mean, there's so many actors to deal with and trying to get anything done is extraordinarily frustrating. Uh, good. Right. That's I mean, America, I mean, America actually goes in the other direction. It was designed to be impossible for anybody to do anything in government from the very beginning. Right. Like they I, they dialed it up, I think, about 20 percent too far. So, so and that's like the dysfunction of the country. There's so many checks and balances that you can't get anything done. Um, but so it's really convenient to deal with a dictator because they just, you know, they say jump. Everyone else says how high. And, and so there's a real, that, that's like, that's, 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 that's very tempting. So I want to bring in some questions from the audience. I'm sure people want to talk about what we actually do um, to actually address some of these issues. Um, but before we do, I just wanted to ask just two final questions. One is about how war is changing. Mm -hmm. Because if I think about either cyber warfare, which might um, make it very unclear who's actually attacked you, yeah. or the growth of autonomous weapons and drones, which really reduces the cost. So if you think about Afghanistan, we for, for years were in Afghanistan long after we were taking many troops out, and it actually may have been financially costly, but it wasn't 
causing as much political cost because people weren't dying there. Yeah. Um, that changes the incentives to, 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 to do warfare. So autonomous weapons, cyber warfare, um, h- how, that, how does that change the way in which some of these forces that you, you've out, outlined play out? You know, so there's an interesting book that came out recently on the invention of sanctions, economic sanctions, which was uh, an innovation. It was kind of a weapon of, is it a weapon of war? You know, that's, it's kind of a question, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you can see that Vladimir Putin would love it if he could say that this is an act of aggression. But for some reason, we've decided that sanctions are not an attack, Right, and you can uh, we could all we could argue lots of reasons why that makes sense, but there's, but you could also imagine it's kind of like an attack. Uh, at some point, and, and when they were invented, they weren't quite sure. Like, is this going to be escalating or de-escalating? Is because is this a weapon or not? And I think it turned out not to be a weapon that escalates. Partly, but maybe just because we all collectively decided to believe it's not. Um, the so cyber warfare and drones are interesting for a couple of reasons. One is because I think we haven't decided if that's war or not. Yeah. Right? Like, and it isn't in some way because it's targeted and it's often, it's not like sustained. So it doesn't, it doesn't quite fit this description of prolonged violence. Um, so it's a little bit, it's like a way of pricking or achieving some strategic objectives in a targeted way. You know, with enough drones, it's obviously war, right? So, so it's this, it's, it maybe it's like this cheap tool that, that nations can deploy as an alternative to prolonged violence that may or may not escalate. But I think it, we're, we're gonna, it'll see, and maybe part of it's just social norms. But the, but the other thing that's, that's but the thing that's dif- distinct about cyber warfare is more that it's what you mentioned. It's the fact that uh, sometimes you don't know who's attacking you. Or you think, well, it looks like it came from North Korea, but we also know like maybe the Chinese or, or the Russians want us to think that and vice versa. And so that curates lots of strategic dynamics. Like what's your optimal response? Or when a few months ago, some grumpy American computer hacker, former military, I think he shut down the lights or the internet. I can't remember the exact details in, in North Korea for a little while. And, and so that's like, that's problematic, I guess, that some guy can make that decision. But then the North Koreans are like, well, wait a second. Is that just a guy in a basement? Or was that really like a secret operation and you're pretending it's a guy? Like it's super, like all of a sudden these strategic dynamics and the potential for things to go awry seems like. So that's that's what's kind of scary about cyber. Great, Chris. Um, let's go to questions now. Who wants to who wants to come in? David. Obviously, Chris, it'd be great to hear more about some of the interventions too, but maybe before we get to that, I wonder if um, you quote Popper in the end of the mm-hmm. book. Um, and um, I was trying to think about, because um, one of his arguments is, is actually how falsifiable is your theory? Because it's mm-hmm. quite complicated. Yeah. Um, and particularly things for like the intangible incentives. It looks like if you came along and Ravi introduced another war, like, but you didn't expect, oh yeah, but it must've been a bigger intangible, but like, it seems like it's quite potentially hard to falsify because of the mm-hmm. complexity of it. And I wonder if you want to come back on that because presumably the implication would be 
you start to do it in some predictive way and does it have power? Yeah. Or the alternative, we can just say, it's really, it's a good enough theory, let's just move straight on to the interventions because if they work, we'll take that, thank you very much. Yeah, as you know, I talk about Popper not because of the falsifiability, but because of, I think, his, his whole idea of human progress is about piecemeal engineering. But uh, I think the falsifiability point is a great one. On some level, okay, I think it is the interesting thing about empirical, the empirical study of conflict in the last 25 years is it's been totally divorced from this theory meaning everybody and all the researchers learn learn what I've told you about in graduate school. Like there's very little that's new in this book for like a PhD in political science, for example. But then then they go and they decide to study war and they say, well, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna like regress conflict on some economic shock and I'm gonna see whether or not poverty is related to conflict. And then and you're like, well, wait, wait, wait. The whole th point of this theory is to say that if you're rich or you're poor, war is costly. So it doesn't matter how big the pie is. It's not clear that there's any theor theoretical relationship between poverty and war. Indeed, that's probably why we don't see that happening uh, in, the, in the actual data. But nobody talked about that for 20 years. They just run these mindless regressions and then invent a whole bunch of other theories of war. Like we go to war because we're greedy and that just actually don't make any strategic sense. So, so if only people have been trying to falsify is part of the answer. But I, I do think the best way to falsify is by trying to have interventions that pinpoint some of these, and then seeing if, if they work, then probably it was because there's, so, so you know, if mediators work, you, you know, it's always hard to know why, but I think so the studies we have give some confidence that it's because they're reducing uncertainty because maybe it's a placebo effect, but other than that, it's not really clear why they'd be doing what they're doing. So, so we, we do, but, but it's, it's harder. It's harder than a lot of other things. Thanks. Um, David, did you want to follow up on interventions? I mean, for those kind of practitioners, so what do we what do we do about it? I know you've done some really interesting things with gangs and elsewhere, and I, I guess the kind of classic issue is a, it's a wonderful book, but if we're stuck in the lift with the prime minister, what are the couple of things we should say? Oh God, it's really worth trying out that. Let's try and do more of those things. And I guess what would be your pitch of your top interventions? You think we should be trying to yeah. do more on? <clears throat> uh, well, I mean, this the when you're stuck in a when you're stuck in an elevator with the which I've not been uh, yet, the the you don't the, you don't give them the real answer, which is um, you need to like you, you you don't you don't act like their doctor. You know, here let me put it this way: if the if the same prime minister went to his doctor and and he and he said, Doc, you know, I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, and then the doctor says, Tylenol and radiotherapy. And you're like, what? You, you know, he would say, you, the prime minister would be like, that's bonkers. You didn't even diagnose what's going on. And then I also know that once you figure out, you're not quite sure what it is, and we're going to have to try a few different treatments, right? And if his doctor didn't do that, he would get fired. And then he talks to his conflict doctor, and he gets mad and doesn't want to talk to them. He fires him if, unless he prescribes Tylenol and and, and radiotherapy or something, right? So, so that's the weird world we live in. Uh, 
I don't know why that's I don't know why that's true about policymakers. Uh, so maybe yeah may, yeah maybe because they're worried they, they we think a little bit more critically about this when our life is on the line. Um, so I guess my answer is then like if I'm trapped in the elevator with these people, I, I kind of try to figure out what they what kind of conflict they care about and where, and then I give them the thing that is probably best for that, the diagnosis I have in my mind, right? Because there's no one answer. But so if they say like, what do I do in Ukraine? Then maybe I pop something off, but I would have a totally different answer if, if it's, I'm trapped in the mayor with the mayor and they say, what am I doing about homicides? Like they're just not the same, but, um, but I'd steer them in certain directions. So I, I guess I just have to, there's no one answer. So at least if I'm going to pretend that there's Tylenol and radiotherapy, I need to know like what they actually care about at that, in that 15 second elevator pitch. Does that make sense? Great. Um, Mark and then, and then. Um, I was really interested in what you said about, about Northern Ireland. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about uh, kind of recent memory and proximity to conflict as a means of sort of sustaining peace and not taking it for granted. And I was thinking about sort of a second generation of leaders in Northern Ireland who seem on the face of it that the risks they need to take to come together are actually much lower than their predecessors, but they seem much more reluctant to do it. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if there's any kind of connection between sort of distance and memory from, from conflict. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I... I have similar questions. I'm, I'm taking, like, there's this famous historian of the IRA, Richard English, that I'm taking to dinner on Sunday and to ask questions like that. So I, I can't, I don't, I'm not very good at prognosticating. I would say, like, generally speaking, I do think, like, I think there's something to the idea that the costs of war fade from memory a little bit. Um, and... And that's a problem. But at the same time, there are enough people. I think there are enough people around in a place like Northern Ireland right now where even if the memories have faded a little bit, they're very tangible. So, uh, so that, I think that's, that, I mean, that's the, I think that's the story right now. There are a lot of tensions. Um, we'll see what happens after this recent election, which is kind of amazing. Uh, but enemies prefer to loathe in peace, and and they are direly aware of the costs of fighting, and that's the primary incentive. It's like a gravitational pull. So I think it's actually a very good first, you know. So my prediction is it won't be violent for that reason, but 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 sometimes it is, and so I. I I'm done making predictions about any of these things, but I but that gives me that's that's my source of optimism. Right, thank you. Um, yeah, this, so just kind of piggybacking off of David's question, um, but being kind of specific to, I think we have obviously a host of interventions that can be done for more grassroots conflict um, or ethnic conflict, but I'd be curious to know if you have any suggestions for kind of interventions for leaders. Mm -hmm. So we talk about, you know, debiasing decision makers and policy work, but when you have a leader who's dealing with, you know, relative power and yeah. trying to do that, what kind of solutions could we do? Yeah, and so that's, I mean, that's such a good example. Yeah, so I'm stuck in the elevator and they want to know how to make better decisions. I mean, for example, what the U.S. military and some, many presidents, uh, Obama, Clinton, the Bushes, 
not Mr. Trump, we're very good at doing. Uh, we're having, sometimes they call it red teams, uh, different ways of like incentivizing people in the organization to be the no men and women and to, to argue against. That's an organizational innovation I think that's really important. I think private, private enterprises sometimes do that as well. Uh, I, I think that a lot of leaders talk about how they like to ask everybody in the room what they think before they say what they think, partly because they want to listen, but partly because they don't want to shape. And they try to, they sometimes try to maintain an air of ambiguity on these difficult decisions so that it's people, they don't get the, the answer that people think they want to hear. And, and so there are a series of these almost managerial innovations that I think have proven to be, be effective. Um, and, and, and autocrats and certain, certain demagogues and things that are bad at those, which is another reason I think that centralized power is so dangerous. Isabel. Thanks. So thinking about the centralization of power is kind of exacerbating the, all the factors you've described. If you're a mediator, whether government or independent, how do you think about engagement with the elite, with the centralized government? Because if they have no buy-in, they have no yeah. reason to persuade their constituencies to buy in. But in doing so, you're potentially storing up problems further down the line because you've got that centralization of power that comes back to bite you. Yeah. How would you think about that? Yes. I mean, in, when the violence is happening... Um, often in, in the book I call it the darker side of peace often what it means is like is a way basically buying off the elites and giving them an incentive to stop fighting uh, and, and that's the US tried to do that as much as possible in Afghanistan and Russia and the US did that as much as possible in the 1990s to keep all these former Soviet republics from having civil wars. And there's just tons of examples of this. Peacekeepers do this to sort of demobilize rebels. Um, and that risks entrenching their power, or at least not just decentralizing. So that sometimes that, that there's not much you can do. I do think like, uh, but then the construction of agreements, to the extent like when, when I think the smart thing to do, so Kenya Kenya's a good example of a country that was having like an increasing number of ethnic, inter-ethnic tensions that had resulted in some moderate levels of violence that were sufficiently frightening to everybody, including the Kenyans, uh, that they wanted to avoid that turning into prolonged violence. And one of their solutions, and they're only maybe the only one of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa that has done this, was regional devolution of not just decision-making power, but budgetary power. They can, they can spend money. And maybe, I think they can tax also. So that, that was their institutional innovation of power sharing. Because in the short run, they just carved up the ministries, right? Which I guess was okay, but, but then they... Then they took the next step and they really tried to decentralize power. They created checks and balances. Uh, I think that's probably going to be profoundly stabilizing. And I think it's good for other reasons. Um, so, so to the extent as a mediator, you could edge things in that direction. I think that's probably a good strategy. Great. Um, 
just finally, Chris, um, you start articulating different ways of um, potentially addressing the drives of conflict, such as greater economic interdependence or greater social linkages so that people don't just have two conflicting identities, but there are multiple identities that hopefully intersect in a way that doesn't create divides. Um, you also talk about you know, more pluralism of power and ways of enforcing rules. Are there examples where your hunch is that something works, but the evidence isn't there yet, mm-hmm. and therefore we should be working to try to either prove that out or, or develop interventions that follow that theory? So, I mean, almost all of them is this, this <laughs> disjunct between the theory and the evidence is really real. Like the absence of people concentrating on testing these ideas, even though, and, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying, oh, no one's testing my ideas. I'm like, I'm saying no one is testing the foundational theories of conflict resolution that have been around for 50 years in, to explain labor strikes, uh, legal battles, and war. So it's kind of amazing. Um, the areas of weakest evidence, I, I would say, are things that test this proposition I make about uh, checks and balances on power being stabilizing. Uh, it, was, it was an argument I made on cases and theory. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and, and, I don't know, passion without hard evidence um, is probably the biggest one. Mm-hmm. And on that, on checks and balances, it's not just through democratic forms right. of accountability. You talk about institutional or institutionalized autocracy. Yeah. Just, just say a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I mean, I think we're all primed for whatever reason to think it means elections. Uh, and so, and so, um, but you know, Having electing a president to be a centralized, basically unchecked leader for five years, which is describes a large number of countries, is, is not really a solution to the problem. And then when we broaden it, we think we keep thinking about downward accountability, like journalism and empowered presses. I mean, all these things are important. Uh, but the people who've influenced me, Eleanor Ostrom, Amos Sawyer, who's a Liberian political scientist um, and a mentor of of mine uh, talked about, they called it polycentrism, which is unfortunately not, not a great name, but they meant like, they meant like checked and balanced in every direction, like laterally, upper. So, so, so um, division of power across branches of government, an independent bureaucracy, um, an absent, maybe limited ability to have political appointments in, in those bureaucracies. Uh, devolution of budgetary and decision-making power to lower levels. Uh, supranational, right? The EU is a check and balance, right? And, and the, the African Union and the East African Union and ECOWAS and every treaty and the WTO and the, you know, the whatever the international rights of the child and the ICC, these are all lateral and upper checks and balances. So, so... I think those are super successful and, and what and, 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 and interest groups and business elites and crony cap. I love crony capitalism because crony, ca- because it's, <laughs> because it's, it's better than a Politburo. Right. And I love Politburo's because it's better than a personalized dictator. 
right? So if we had, if we still had like a Soviet Supreme Council instead of Putin, or if we actually had a plutocracy instead of a and a Soviet Supreme Council instead of Putin, maybe wouldn't we wouldn't have had this war, mm-hmm. right? And 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 that's why I also feel better about China because China doesn't. China's even more than that. It has this much bigger plutocracy, and then it's it has this huge communist party, and it has all these regional government. Like there's a lot of power that's checked and balanced. So it's not a personalized system, um, and so that's that's stabilizing. So if I had to push in one direction, I would say more checks. Like I I would emphasize checks and balances rather than more elections. I mean I would like both. Mm-hmm. But but I would say we we pay so much attention to elections that we forget to sort of sing the praises of crony capitalism as a strategy for peace. Chris Bartman, thank you so much for coming. Thank you also for just writing an amazing book. When I think about the debate on war, it's so often framed in terms of cops and robbers and goodies and baddies. There's lots of pop psychology thrown in there. Even when I was working in the Foreign Office, I can remember going to Syria and people would be talking to me. This is before the war about, well, Assad, he was you know, an ophthalmologist in London, his wife is British, he's pro-Western, let's engage. And it's, it's, it doesn't have the richness um, that you brought to the topic. And I think this is a framework that will help guide lots of people in the field. So thank you very much for, for joining us. No, thanks. This was fun.